Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist's Newsflash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode features Chris Smith, Kat Arney, Miracentha Lingam and Sarah Custer-Perry, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, how researchers at Addenbrooke's Hospital have been able to relieve peanut allergies by building up tolerance, giving minute doses of peanut protein. And by the end of this, the individuals were then able to tolerate eating 12 whole peanuts without any visible signs of reaction. And the researchers have now prescribed a daily regimen of eating at least five peanuts in order to try and keep these people in a tolerant state. We find out how laser scanning can tell us how much weight the dinosaurs carried. And this is really interesting because dinosaurs, as we know, are the evolutionary precursors to birds. And so understanding how dinosaurs moved and how their weight affected that will tell us more about the evolution of birds and hopefully a bit about the evolution of flight as well. And we discover why waste from processing fish can boost businesses around Lake Victoria. And they feel that these could be utilised for bioconversion, for producing value-added products. You can also do oil production and you can do renewable energy. Apparently, fish waste is very good for producing biodiesel and biogas. Plus, we'll be hearing how meningitis bacteria wears a disguise made from our own proteins to avoid being spotted by our immune system, and we'll have the very first instalment of This Week in Science History, where Sarah Castor-Perry looks back on the key historical events that celebrate an anniversary this week. That's all on the way. This week, scientists have suggested that they may have found a way to desensitise people who have peanut allergies. Peanut allergy is a big problem. About 2% of children in the UK are said to have it, and it can be life-threatening, if not fatal. People can have very, very serious reactions to the proteins in peanuts, which can cause anaphylaxis when their blood pressure plummets and they end up on the floor. And if they don't get resuscitated with drugs like adrenaline quickly, then it can actually be fatal. But what Andy Clark and his colleagues at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge have done, they've published a paper in the journal Allergy in the current issue, which is out at the moment, is that they took four 9- to 13-year-old boys, and these individuals were all proven to have peanut allergy. When the researchers looked in their bloodstream, they found antibodies called IgE antibodies, which are thought to mediate allergic reactions to things like peanuts and they were also able to show that when small amounts of peanut protein were put into the skin of these individuals they all had a reaction inflammation was seen thus proving they were reacting to peanuts and what they did was to give these individuals graded exposure so over a period of time starting with a very very tiny dose just five milligrams of peanut flour so in other words the protein from peanuts and to put that into perspective that's about one fortieth of the total protein you get in a single peanut so a minute dose They took that dose for about two weeks and then after two weeks the dose was doubled and then for another two weeks they took the higher dose and so on and so forth until they got the dose up to about 800 milligrams, so roughly about four peanuts worth of protein. And by the end of this, the individuals were then, after six weeks at, at that dose, able to tolerate eating 12 whole peanuts without any visible signs of reaction. And the researchers have now prescribed a daily regimen of eating at least five peanuts in order to try and keep these people in a tolerant state. So what is exactly going on there? You know, how, how do they think it's actually working? Because surely I thought with peanut allergy, even tiny amounts could just trigger terrible reactions. 
Yes, and what we think is going on here is that the body has two arms to the immune system, an arm that attacks things and also an arm that regulates things because one of the things we have to do with our immune system is to tell friend from foe. And food is something foreign which we take into our body all the time, but if we had catastrophic immune reactions to it, we would die of starvation. We would have to ignore everything. So there has to be a mechanism in place to make sure that you are tolerant. In other words, you don't react adversely to things in foods. And it could be that people who have allergies don't have enough of this uh, tolerance. They don't have enough of the regulatory cells in the body that damp down the immune response against certain things. So gentle exposure could increase the actual part of the immune system that does this regulation, helping you to tolerate it better. And it could be that people who have these sorts of allergic reactions don't have enough of that kind of regulatory type of cell and that by stimulating it with small doses up to a level where you can tolerate higher levels means that these individuals can then be protected and it's just that if they were to stop eating that particular food they would then lose that regulation again. So it seems to be a graded exposure gets you used to the things that you should be used to anyway and in some people it's just gone a little bit off kilter. That's really great. Well I hope that starts becoming clinical practice soon because it's really um, quite a devastating allergy for people to have. Um, from from one um compared to to cancer, a relatively trivial disease. But cervical cancer is in the news here in the UK as reality TV star Jade Goody has been diagnosed with the disease. And this week, researchers at King's College London have published a paper showing that rates of cervical cancer are higher in poorer areas than in richer ones. And these results do have important implications for targeting cancer awareness and cancer screening campaigns. Now, led by Dr Laura Curran, the researchers analysed data from over 2,000 women who were diagnosed with cervical cancer between 2,000 2001 and 2005 in London, Kent, Surrey and Sussex. Now these areas cover a wide range of different levels of social deprivation and they looked for patterns to link cervical cancer to social deprivations and related things like rates of smoking, uh, rates of teen pregnancy and cervical screening uptake. And they found that the rates of cervical cancer vary dramatically across the southeast of England and even in just some neighbouring areas there was up to a threefold difference with rates of cervical cancer much higher in poor areas. That is dramatically different. Why do they think there's such a difference? Well, there's probably a number of reasons. Um, firstly, smoking is obviously is linked to an increase of cervical cancer and rates of smoking we do know are higher in poorer areas than in richer ones. Also, we know that women in poorer areas are much less likely to take up cervical screening, which is something that saves thousands of lives every year in the UK. And last year alone, we know that hundreds of thousands of women didn't take up their invitation for screening. Another thing is, is that cervical cancer is called caused by a virus called HPV, the human papillomavirus. And we know this is spread through sexual contact. So if you're looking at areas with high teen pregnancy, you assume that maybe these women are starting to have sex younger and they're more likely to be exposed to HPV. So that's probably another major reason. But the key thing about cervical cancer here is that it's very preventable. We know through screening, screening's picking up precancerous changes before the cancer's even developed. So in these areas, if women aren't getting the message that screening is important, that screening could save their life and screening's not it's not going to find they have cancer but it may even find that they have precancerous cells that they can be treated this would make a really big impact on survival in these kind of areas and obviously although the story of Jade Goody is is a terrible tragedy for her and her family it's actually done a lot to raise awareness of cervical cancer and the importance of screening so in fact it could be a lifesaver. You just have to look at the numbers of people who uh, if you look at cervical cancer rates in other countries who don't have screening programs and you look at the rates in other countries you see that it does have a huge benefit. Unbelievably yeah in in places like Africa and 
the developing world, cervical cancer is one of the major killers of women. It's in number those one cause of death, isn't it? Whereas Absolutely. in the UK, I think it's down at number seven or something. It, it, it's much, much better. A off. tiny number of women. It, yeah. It's less than a thousand women die from cervical yeah, cancer. Yeah, there's about three thousand cases a year here, isn't there? Yeah, for actually diagnosed cases. It's hundreds of thousands of cases of cervical cancer in the developing world. It's it's crazy for for a cancer that is so detectable and so preventable. So get screened is the bottom line, I think. Absolutely. Isn't it? Thank you, Kat. Now another major problem is intravenous drug use and drug withdrawal. Now, people who use drugs aren't just people who are shooting up heroin addicts. It's also people who get on prescription drugs and they might have a very painful condition and they take take drugs to deal with their pain, but then they have to stop taking the painkillers. And when they stop taking them, they have all kinds of unpleasant withdrawal symptoms. Well, now researchers at Stanford University in America think they may have come up with a way to make this, or I could say, to take some of the sting out of the tail of going cold turkey like this. This is Larry Chu and his colleagues. Um, And what they did was to study strains of mice to see how they withdrew. Now, there are lots of different strains of mice. There are about 20 different strains of mice that we use in laboratories. And if they get um, given morphine or morphine-like drugs and then put into drug withdrawal, then some of the strains of mice behave differently to others. When mice are withdrawing from drugs, they tend to hop or jump a lot more. They become jumpy, just like a human does. But some of these mice don't. So the researchers wondered if there was something genetically different about these mice that meant they could tolerate withdrawal symptoms better than others. So they did a genetic screening and they've published their paper in the Journal of Pharmacogenetics and Genomics in the current issue. And what they did was to compare the DNA sequences of mice that did jump a lot when they were withdrawing from drugs to mice that didn't. And they found a hotspot in a gene which is called HTR3A. And this gene, in fact, is one we already know about. It's the gene that makes the receptor for the brain's feel-good chemical, serotonin, 5-hydroxytryptamine. And there's already a drug on the market called Ondansetron, which is given to people who have nausea and vomiting, and especially chemotherapy patients who get nausea and vomiting because of their chemotherapy drugs, and it's very effective. So, because they'd found this difference in this receptor... The researchers wondered, well, what would happen if we gave some of this drug to our mice? So they gave their mice some of this ondansetron, and the animals all jumped a lot less, suggesting that it seemed to be making their withdrawal symptoms a lot better. So, because this drug already is licensed for use in humans, they then went and recruited eight volunteers, gave them some morphine, and then put them into a withdrawal state, which you can do by giving a morphine-blocking drug called naloxone. And in half the subjects, they had previously given them a dose of this on Dancitron, and half they gave a placebo. And the ones who got the placebo were far worse off than the people who had the on Dancitron. Now, they're not saying this is the answer to preventing all kinds of withdrawal symptoms, but what they are saying is this could be the start of a way of looking at this problem and making withdrawal symptoms a lot less unpleasant because when we try and treat addicts at the moment, all we do is to substitute one addiction for another. We give them methadone or other drugs which basically satisfy the craving but they don't make the addictive symptoms go away if they stop and that's the nut we need to crack and this could be one way to do it interesting it'd be interesting to see how the research goes from there uh, and then finally my story about my favorite thing dinosaurs <laughs> i love dinosaurs i'm sure i'm a five-year-old child deep inside but we normally think of dinosaurs as huge great beasts roaming about the earth generally being scary and now researchers at the university of manchester have used laser imaging to reveal whether our favorite prehistoric beasts were trim and fit or big old fatty sauruses and writing in the journal plus one carl bates and his team used laser imaging and 3d reconstruction techniques to recreate the bodies of five dinosaurs of different sizes and they looked at two tyrannosaurus rexes at 
they looked at something called an Acrocanthosaurus aetokensis. Easy uh, for him to say. <laughs> yeah, a Struchiomimum sedens and an Edmontosaurus enectens. Now, their results suggest that the smaller of the two T-Rexes they looked at could have weighed anywhere between five and a half and seven tonnes, while the larger one probably weighed in at about eight tonnes. And the, uh, the other dinosaurs were slightly smaller. The Acrocanthosaurus, I wish I hadn't done this story now. Acrocanthosaurus probably weighed in around six tonnes, but the Struchiomimum was around 0.4 tonnes and Edmontosaurus was just under a tonne. Now, what does this tell us? Well, as well as making nice pictures of dinosaurs, it's quite important because the team were making these reconstructions to try and find out more about how the dinosaurs probably moved. And this is really interesting because dinosaurs, as we know, are the evolutionary precursors to birds. And so understanding how dinosaurs moved and how their weight affected that will tell us more about the evolution of birds and hopefully a bit about the evolution of flight as well. Thank you, Kat. What does it tell us about Virgin Atlantic? <laughs> Not uh, that kind of flight. It'll never get off the ground. Now, also this week, scientists at the University of Oxford have discovered that the bacteria that cause meningitis, or at least one of the strains of bacteria that can cause meningitis, are also masters of disguise. And that's because these bacteria have learned to camouflage themselves so that they resemble our own cells, so the immune system finds it much more difficult to spot them. Now, meningitis is universally fatal if you have the bacterial form, if it's untreated, and it occurs when the lining of the or the tissues around the brain, called the meninges, get infected with particular strains of bacteria. And in the case we're talking about here, a strain of bacteria called Neisseria meningitidis group B. And Professor Susan Lee is a researcher at Oxford University who's got a paper in the journal Nature this week explaining how these bacteria do this and manage to hide themselves. Susan, how do they disguise themselves? Hi, Chris. Well, in the work really came from um, a problem that was brought to us by Professor Chris Tang at the University of um, Imperial College. And he'd been working with meningitis for many years, looking at the bacteria and trying to understand them in more detail to try and generate therapeutics. And they'd noticed a couple of years ago that the bacteria somehow managed to um, mask themselves as human cells by coating themselves in a protein that circulates in our own blood called factor H. And this protein is a very important part of how we regulate our own immune response in that we've got one arm of our immune system which essentially seeks to destroy anything it comes in contact with in the blood. And to protect all our cells, we develop a series of sugars on our cells that then bind this protein called factor H, which turns off this part of the immune system. So how do the uh, Neisseria meningitidis bacteria exploit that? Well, Neisseria can't make the same sugars that we can make. They don't have the machinery to make those sorts of chemicals. And so instead, the Neisseria has chosen a different route and manufactures another protein and instead uses this protein essentially to um, fight, seek out and bind to factor H to coat the surface of the bacterium in the factor H in the way our own cells are done, but by a very different sort of chemistry underlying the interaction. And so your work has been to discover the structure of that protein to work out how the bacteria grab this protective, this disguise, factor H from the blood and then decorate themselves with it. Absolutely. We've worked with Chris to generate the structure of an actual complex between the protein from the bacteria and the protein from ourselves. And in doing this, it allows us to see how the bacteria uses the chemistry of proteins to mimic the chemistry of sugars that we have on our cells. The interactions are actually very similar. Some years ago, uh, we looked at the structure of sugars binding to factor H, and we now see that the structure of this protein binding to factor H mimics 
the same sorts of interactions but using protein-based chemistry rather than sugar chemistry. And how, now that you've got that structure, will this help us to get a vaccine? Because we've had a vaccine for the A strain of meningitis for a long time, and that's helped in places like Africa. We've had the vaccine for strain C, which has made a dramatic difference for young people, especially people going to university. B has always been the big problem. 90% of meningitis cases in Britain are down to group B. How is this going to help us get a vaccine against this now? Well, essentially, this the, the protein that we've on the structure of is actually a, one of the components of the vaccines by both Novartis and Wyeth that are currently in phase three clinical trials and are really looking quite promising. But we think from looking at our structure, we predict that by altering a very small part of the protein, we can make a protein which will no longer bind factor H. And we suspect that this will make a much better vaccine because it won't be have a large part of its surface covered up by factor H because when you immunize somebody with the current versions of the vaccine trials that are going on, in fact, much of the bacterial protein will be hidden from the immune system because it will be bound to factor H and you therefore won't get as good an immune response against it as you might otherwise get. And so we've made versions of this protein now that are 98%, more than 98, 99% identical to the natural form, but they no longer combine factor H. And so we think that these will be much better candidates for targets in the vaccine. Brilliant. Thank you very much. That was Professor Susan Lee from Oxford University. She's got a paper explaining that work in the journal Nature this week about how Neisseria meningitidis, one of the leading causes of bacterial meningitis in Britain, actually disguises itself using something it robs from our own bloodstream. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. Still to come, Sarah Castor-Perry takes us back in time to find out what happened this week in science history. But first, naked scientist Mira Senthalingam spoke to our South African correspondent Christina Scott about recent research by Ugandan and Tanzanian scientists that could not only improve the environmental conditions of Lake Victoria, but also present new business opportunities and ways to add value to existing ventures. Here's Christina Scott. What they've looked at very closely is what happens to Nile perch processed into fish fillets for export. The problem is everything else belonging to the fish is getting pumped back into the lake. This is seriously bad for the environment. It's also really bad for the economy. And they've been able to quantify this and say exactly both things, how bad it is for the environment and how stupid it is because it's incredibly profitable to use fish waste for things like animal feed and, believe it or not, cosmetics. And so what have they found are the two effects that are being caused by this? Well, the problem is basically that they're dumping close to 2 million cubic metres of wastewater annually back into the lake and over 35,000 tonnes of solid waste. And what's happening basically is that they're altering the oxygen, there's massive growth of weeds, And in the end, they're actually going to kill off the entire industry. I mean, they have 30 factories that they researched. These employ thousands of people. The whole point about fish processing wastewater is that these things have inorganic compounds from things like detergents and disinfectants, the stuff used in the factories, and they've got a whole lot of biological components with a rich source of lipids and proteins And they feel that these could be utilized for bioconversion, for producing value-added products. You can also do oil production, and you can do renewable energy. Apparently, 
fish waste is very good for producing biodiesel and biogas. Other things include organic fertilizer, and apparently fish waste has fairly strong potential, which has only been fairly recently identified for producing the biochemical products that are used in a huge range of industries, including the pharmaceutical industry, cosmetics, and if you don't treat it properly, you end up with eutrophication of the lake, and that alters everything, the changes in the species composition and possible loss of species. And if you consider that actually you can make money out of doing this instead of ruining the environment, I would say that's sort of a win-win situation. Well, hopefully these fisheries will make the most of that and, and it will lead to a much better economic development in all of the countries surrounding Lake Victoria, really. But also this month, there's been some work on tiger nuts. Yeah, tiger nuts are actually, maybe you could consider them something like an African potato, a family of plants that produces tubers. And it's often known as earth almonds. They're very tasty and it's a bit also like coconuts in a way in that you get milk from these nuts. They looked in Nigeria at the yellow variety of tiger nut and they've been looking at fermenting it and turning it into flour. Fermentation is really quite interesting in that it's used all over Africa often to reduce toxic compounds. Sometimes they ferment things so that the flour can then last longer. And tiger nut is used in an incredible variety of ways. I know that the researchers say that it can be consumed raw, roasted, dried, baked, or, and I quote, made into a refreshing beverage. But the real reason why they're interested in this is that tiger nut is also used for things like making oil, soap, starch, and flour. And the Nigerians then looked at this to see whether chufa, as it's known in some places, or zulu nut, would be offering much potential in food formulation and in food manufacturing. And they found, in fact, that actually tiger nut has got a potential for use in food. So how did they actually look into the potential of the tiger nut? These researchers who come from the Department of Food Science and Engineering at Ladoke Akintola University of Technology basically just went to the market to buy some tiger nuts and soaked them in water and left them to ferment for various time spans, I think one day, two days, 72 hours, drained them, dried them in an oven, ground them into flour, passed the flour through a very fine mesh sieve, and then analyzed the flour for its properties and its composition, and looked at things like protein, fat, starch, and found things like there was an increase in the sugar content, which is another good reason for having more fermentation, is that you can make your food taste sweeter. And now what they're doing is looking at the type of microorganisms that are triggering the fermentation and trying to develop starter culture so that you can ferment the seed in a fairly regular way. And from there, they're going to be looking at how you use this flour in various food formulations. So what is it about tiger nuts, though, that make them so good for us? Oh, honestly, it sounds like vitamins. Tiger nuts, especially the yellow variety, which was what these researchers were testing, have high amounts of calcium, sodium and copper potassium, magnesium, manganese and iron. And the amount of calcium found in the flour is actually enough for proper bone and teeth development in infants. So in addition to the starch, it's actually got quite a lot of trace minerals which are needed in the human diet. 
So underappreciated plants like the tiger nut could provide a variety of foodstuffs as well as improving our nutrition. That was Christina Scott from the Science and Development Network talking to Naked Scientist Mira Senthalingam. And now on to a new feature for the Naked Scientist Newsflash. Sarah Castor-Perry takes us through science history to find out what key events happened in this week. This week is the publication of Charles Darwin's Descent of Man. This week in science history saw, in 1871, the publication of The Descent of Man by Charles Darwin. Although perhaps not as famous as The Origin of Species, published 12 years earlier, it was still an influential and controversial book. In 1871, Queen Victoria was on the throne in Great Britain, photographs were still in black and white, travel was by horse-drawn carriage or steam train, Lewis Carroll published Through the Looking Glass, the Impressionist art movement was in full swing, led by artists like Monet and Cezanne, and slavery was abolished in the US during the Reconstruction after the Civil War. After the publication of The Origin of Species in 1859, Darwin began working on another book that would allow him to discuss further how humans fitted into his theory of evolution and also try to explain the process of evolution of traits that were purely for increasing success in mating, or what he called sexual selection. The first part of The Descent of Man, in which he discusses man's place in evolution and his descent from some lower form, was the most controversial. Darwin had not intended to publish his writings on this subject, but as more young naturalists showed enthusiasm for his theory, he felt he should see how far his general conclusions on natural selection applied to man. It is now accepted by most people that we are closely related to apes, less closely related to other mammals, and even less to other vertebrates, other multicelled organisms, and so on. But this understanding has developed with over 130 years of research since The Descent of Man was published. We have modern DNA evidence that Darwin did not, but a lot of the anatomical evidence that he presents is still relevant to comparisons today. Darwin suggests that the similarity of human embryos to those of other mammals and the anatomical similarity of humans and apes, down to the fact that we can suffer from the same infectious diseases with similar symptoms, is strong evidence in favour of man being descended from other animals, not specially created. In the book, Darwin also makes the comparison of mental characteristics such as tool use, altruism and kindness in humans, apes, monkeys and dogs, concluding that the difference in mind, great as it is, certainly is one of degree and not kind. The idea that our mental abilities and moral ideas were merely one level on a scale that also included animals was abhorrent to many, and the debate over intelligence in animals is still going on today. The question of whether natural selection is still acting on humans is one that Darwin and many of his contemporaries discussed, and in fact is still asked today. The naturalist David Attenborough, for example, believes that humans have probably stopped evolving. The provision of medicine, aid and asylums for the poor or sick seemed to Darwin to check the process of elimination by natural selection, allowing these weaker members of society to breed. Although Darwin suggested that this might be bad for the evolution of the human race as a whole, Neither he nor his cousin Galton, who argued in favour of eugenics and social Darwinism, would ever have supported the ends to which these ideas were put by the Nazis and others in the 20th century. The second half of the book is a detailed collection of evidence for sexual selection, the idea that a characteristic might evolve because it gives greater success in mating rather than greater survival. Darwin suggested that sexual selection could occur by two routes – through competition between members of the same sex for mates, leading to weapons such as horns and antlers, 
and through mate choice, leading to the elaborate plumage or coloration in males to attract females. We now know that there is a third way sexual selection can lead to the evolution of characteristics, male-female conflict, which can lead to deceptive behaviour to make your mate stick around to help rear the young. In 2009, we're celebrating 200 years since Darwin's birth and 150 years since the publication of The Origin of Species. But this second major work by the great naturalist also deserves recognition. It was a collation of a huge amount of information on sexual selection, from mammals and birds to fish and insects, and also an in-depth view on the controversial debate over man's place in evolution from one of the greatest scientific minds of the age. Sarah Custer-Perry explaining how this week in 1871 saw the publication of Darwin's Descent of Man, still the subject of controversy and research today over 130 years on. Sarah will be delving into the science history books again next week. And that's all we have time for in this Naked Scientist newsflash, which this week featured Chris Smith, Kat Arney, Mira Senthalingam and Sarah Custer-Perry, along with our guests, Professor Susan Lee and Christina Scott. The Naked Scientist newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you've enjoyed this newsflash, why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where each week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions, and a kitchen science experiment to try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientists.com, and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.